Hello and welcome to Stoppage Time, the Surrey FA podcast powered by Capital Content. Today we're joined by a true leader in his field. Our guest has worked in the professional game for 34 years, including 21 years as head physio at Arsenal Football Club and head of physiotherapy services to the FA for 20 years. In that time, he's worked with some of the greatest players in the game as Arsenal claimed five league titles and countless cup wins. He's also played a key role for England teams at four European Championships and five World Cups. It's a real honour to be joined today by Gary Lewin. Gary, thanks for joining us. Hello, James. Yeah, thank you for inviting me on. <laughs> I mean, it's an impressive CV. I hope I got that right and uh, <laughs> the uh, the right the right numbers of tournaments, etc. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the gist of it is right. I I fortunately started in '96 when Glenn Hoddle became the manager. And um, although the first 12 years was part-time while I was still working at Arsenal, then when Fabio Capello came on board, he wanted full-time staff. So in 2008, I went full-time at the FA um, and I left the FA in 2016. Um, managed to do four European Championships, five World Cups and the Olympics. So, yeah, I was very, very lucky. Yeah, I left the Olympics out of that. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible CV, really. Um, so... I guess in the last couple of years, you've sort of moved away from football as a whole. Uh, what, what have you been working on in that time? Well, I left England in 2016 after the European Championships. And for the first year, I um, had a bit of a break from full-time football, just did some private work in different clinics. And then in 2017, I was invited to go to West Ham um, for a year with Slaven Bilic. Um, unfortunately, Slaven left halfway through the season. And at the end of the season, they had... Uh, a complete change of staff and Pellegrini came in as a manager. So I left West Ham in 2018. And that's when I got together with my cousin, Colin, who had been at Arsenal for also for 20 years. And um, we got together and decided to open up our own clinic. And that's where we are now. We're, we're, we've set up the Lewin Sports Injury Clinic in Hainault and Essex, and we've been up and running since last October. I've managed to carry on working with football. I'm a consultant with the Arsenal women's team and I do one day a week and games with the Arsenal women. And I'm back at the FA again now teaching on the ATMIF course as a tutor. So I've still kept my foot in the door in the football world, but uh, mainly my job is the Lewin Sports Injury Clinic. Yeah, so, so you're not going to be tempted back. <laughs> I don't think you're ever not tempted back. I think once you've been in the game, as long as I have, the the... The drug will always be there and the love of the game will always be there. And I'm just getting a bit older now. I can't see me being invited back in. But if the inv invitation come up, I would seriously consider it. You never know. If you keep doing uh, County FA webinars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Put the put my, word, put my name out there a bit more. You never know what might come yeah, up. Exactly, exactly. Um, so actually, I was going to sort of come in. You talked about sort of your passion for the game. Um, and you started out yourself as a young player um, with Arsenal. Do you think having that kind of insight helped you as a physio working in the game? Definitely early doors. Um, the era that I come from, um, I signed Arsenal as a 14-year-old schoolboy. Um, ironically, I was out the other day with Paul Parker, who I played schoolboy football with, and uh, we were at Fulham together. He stayed at Fulham and went on to play in World Cups and Man United and things like that. And I went to Arsenal and unfortunately didn't make it and got released when I was 18. But that um, knowledge of how football works, the psychology of it, um, definitely helped me in my early years. 
Because again, when I first come into football, you didn't necessarily have to be a charter physio. So there weren't many charter physios in football, whereas now it is a minimum qualification. So I'm not sure I would have had the opportunity today that I would have that I had in the 80s when I first started at Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, I mean, you've had a sort of a more prolonged career with Arsenal than you could have ever possibly hoped for as a player. So, yeah, it's probably the best thing that happened to me. Yeah. yeah. I've had some, I've been very, very fortunate. Um, I've had some great experiences, some great times in football, worked with many, many incredible players and staff. And uh, it, it's been, it's been a fantastic journey. And uh, one, I still enjoy working in sports medicine and still enjoy working with the Arsenal women and teaching at the FA. So yeah, I think it's, once it's in your blood, it's there forever. Yeah, yeah, I can, can well imagine. I can well imagine. Now, what I was going to ask you, you sort of touched on earlier about, um, you know, working with managers and of course certain managers will come in and bring in, bring, bring in their own staff. Um, and maybe people, people sort of don't think of the medical teams as kind of moving around with that as well. Um, you've, you've worked with some very successful managers. How important is that relationship between yourself uh, as, as a physio and the manager? And, and maybe have you dealt with those different personalities between them? Yeah, I mean, again, I'm just going to refer back to what I mentioned earlier about how much the game has changed. Um, so, for example, when I, when I was at Arsenal, we won the league in 1989 in that famous game at Anfield. Um, George Graham was the full-time manager. Theo Foley, who unfortunately recently died, was the assistant manager. Tony Donnelly was the kit man and I was the physio. We were the four full-time staff that worked with the team. Now you're talking about staffs of 25, 30 people working with the team. So in the early days, that relationship with the manager was crucial um, because it was a working relationship. He had to trust you. The players had to trust you. They had to trust your relationship with the manager. So that, that was crucial to the whole setup. Now in the modern game, that relationship is still as important. But I think it's more the relationship with the multidisciplinary team. As with coaches, you, you have a multidisciplinary team of coaches. You have defensive coaches, attacking coaches, goalkeeping coaches. Um, and it's so important that they work together as a team in, in relation with the manager. So medically, those things have moved on exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I was sort of thinking, thinking about the kind of the difference between that club environment and the international environment and obviously in a club setup you've, you've got a lot more control maybe over mm. over over everything really sort yeah. of your, your facilities and and control but better control over the players um when you're away with england on those international breaks what what were the biggest challenges particularly when you're away at tournaments well the first challenge is what you've got to remember is you're only borrowing the players um, you don't own them the way the clubs do. You don't work with them um, every day, day in and day out. So first thing, you have to build a relationship with the clubs um, because you are looking after their employees. Um, you have to build up relationship with the players um, so they trust you when they come away with England. Um, and when you are away with England, the challenges are slightly different because you're going to countries where you need to check that they've got the facilities, the infrastructure that a club you take for granted. So a lot of work went into preparation of where we were going, what we had on site, access to hospitals, emergency action plans, taking all equipment with us. So a lot more planning went into the international game 
whereas at club level, because you're returning, apart from when you're playing Europe, obviously, you're returning to clubs that you're going to year in, year out, and you know the staff there. So again, you build up relationship with staff around the country. Yeah, yeah. I'm, well, it, I don't, I don't want you to upset anyone, but um, what were the sort of the best and the worst facilities that you encountered when when you were on, on England duty? For England, it was it, it's slightly different. At club level, the the standard is set by the league and oh. all the criteria set by the league. So it was it was quite standardised across the board. When you went away internationally, you had many many different aspects. What what that became difficult, first of all, were facilities. So you would be living in a hotel. Um, you would be staying close to, because basically you fly in, train the night before, play the game and fly out. So you had to make sure that you had, had everything you needed at the hotel. The variation in the qualities of hospitals. So if you were going to countries like Albania compared to Switzerland, um, in their own way, they were completely different, but of very high standards. And that that's what you did in your preparation to make contact with hospitals, make contact with specialists. So if something ever went wrong and you had to take a player or staff to one of these facilities, then you know that they're going to be well looked after. You then have to think about how you get them home, because at the end of the day, you are returning to your country after the game. So there's lots of protocols, procedures, emergency action plans. So for me, that's the biggest difference between the two. The, the planning internationally is far, far greater. Yeah, it must have been quite difficult for you combining that with the club side as well for that, that period where you were, were yeah, 12 I mean, years. For the, for the first 12 years where I was doing club and country, it, it was difficult. Um, but the FA had a lot of full-time staff on the administration side. There was a, a team ops person called Michelle Farrer who'd been there a long, long time. Um, and we had travel um, people that were, did all the travel arrangements. We had security people, guys like Ray Whitworth, who would organise the, the security, and they would go and do the recce's. Um, and they knew we, we, we'd worked together for a long, long time, so we get to know exactly what was needed. So it was a well-oiled machine that got churned out every time we had international break. Cool, cool. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to go into into your sort of your career here, maybe from a sporting point of view um and you've been involved in, in so many historic moments i mean you touched on the sort of the 1989 league title yeah. victory all, the, all those glory years at arsenal um you know even some some great moments with england as well mm. um from a sporting point of view what's been your highlight what have been your highlights how long have you got i've been so <laughs> lucky um if i quickly went through the top two or three from each so i've mentioned liverpool anfield 89 um doing the cup double with george graham in 93 doing the double with arson in 98 um going the invincibles team in 2004 um although we lost it the champions league final in 2006 i think it was mm -hmm. i don't know 2005 no, it was 2006, something of a Man United in the Cup in 2005. I've been very, very lucky to have some incredible moments. Um, Country-wise, never went past any quarter-final stages of any tournaments, um, but beating Germany in Munich 5-1 was a great night. Um, the first World Cup we qualified for in 97, we went to 97-98 um, season, we went to Rome, needing a point, and... Uh, I remember Ian Wright hitting the post in injury time. They broke away and hit the bar. Um, and that nil-nil result took us through. 
you got the famous Beckham free kick against Greece um, when we qualified and Germany in our group. That was the same qualifying group as when we beat them 5-1 in Munich, um, beating Argentina in Japan. So, look, very, very lucky going to a World Cup in Brazil, although it ended very badly for me personally. Having a yeah. World Cup <laughs> final in Brazil was a unique moment, iconic moment. So I've been so blessed and humbled by the the, the, the opportunities I've had um, representing GB in, in the Olympics was a, a fantastic experience. So, look, I, I've been so spoiled. It's incredible, but I've enjoyed every single minute of it. Um, I managed to do 234 games, I think it was, for England. And the last one was as special as the first one. And I don't think you ever lose that representing your country. Yeah, I think that's a sort of a great pub quiz question. You know, which, which one man was involved in, in all these incredible sporting moments? I mean, really sort of, the, the last 25 years, those uh, some of those amazing moments there. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, sort of going back to the, the physio side of things, um, obviously you've been involved in the uh, rehabilitation of, of, of many players in that time. Um, so kind of professionally from that point of view, which, which success stories do you think you would say you're, you're sort of your proudest of? Well, the profession that we work in, most of them you don't hear about. Mm -hmm. um and so for example um michael thomas scored the winning goal in the 89 game anfield in the 92nd minute he actually injured his knee in our game 10 days before against wimbledon and we were working with him 24 7 leading up to the day before and i took him for a fitness test the day before we went to anfield and i remember saying to george graham he's fit enough to start but i don't think he'll finish which shows you how much i know um, because he ends up scoring the winning goal. Um, you remember the nasty moments, uh, David Rowcastles this world, when his airway got blocked, so John Terry when he got knocked out um, um, at the um, League Cup final in uh, in Cardiff, um, the Eduardo incident where he broke his leg uh, at Birmingham. Um, so you remember those kind of ones that get, that get, get what we call front page, back page headlines. Um but I think the most pleasing ones are the day-to-day -day ones, the way and the ones that you're working with day in and day out. And probably the most pleasing thing is when, unbeknown to everybody, you've got a player through a game that wasn't expected to play in-house. Nobody else knew about it. And after the game, the player just comes and says, thank you. And uh, you get very humbled and you get a lot of sex action, despite nobody knowing that actually this occurred. So... I think that's that's why you do the job. You in, you enjoy you enjoy the competition. You enjoy the sport. You enjoy the camaraderie you have with all the players. And when you're with them the way we are at that level, you become a family. And uh, even to this day, you're bumping to players that you worked with 15, 20 years ago, and it's as though you, you've 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 never been apart, and you're you're just best friends for life, really. And I think that's. The, the, the side of the job that nobody ever sees or appreciates, but you do become a family. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you make is that probably the, the sign of you doing doing a really good job is 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 when everything's kind of, uh, you know, running to plan and no one no one hears yeah. about any of these, these knocks. Yeah, I mean, obviously a bugbear of medical staff is people judge how good or bad we are by the number of injuries we have. Mm -hmm. But it actually, it's not the medical team that get them injured. The yeah. way you should be judged is how you get them back from injury and the, the timescales. Now, 
unfortunately, at the moment, um, the Premier League don't do an audit of injury. Um, and I've harped on this for years when I was at the FA myself and Dr. Beasley. We tried to get something going with the uh, the Premier League to audit the number of injuries, the types of injuries, and more importantly, the recovery from injury. So there is no set audits. Everything you read is hearsay, and there are companies that do stats, but they're taken from um, reported, uh, reports in newspapers. They're not statisticians working from a official audit. So you can get frustrated and sidetracked by the number of injuries that a team have. That doesn't mean they've got a poor medical team. Um, mm-hmm. As I said before, it's not the medical team that get them injured. Yeah, and I guess as well, in, in the period that you've been working, you know, the quality of, of the pitches improving so much, that must have made a huge difference. Everything's improved. The quality of pitches, the standard of player, they're now athletes, the standard of training, the sports science that goes into the training, the psychology that goes into it, the nutrition, the diagnostic techniques that we use now. When I first started, we could only use x-rays, but now we've got MRIs, CTs, we've got open MRIs. You've got uh, bone isotopic scans. Um, you've got ultrasound scans. So that the sciences are far greater um, when it comes to medicine and coaching. Um, coaches now are much, much more ed- well educated in the sports science of things. So preparation, loading during training, the use of GPS, um, positional play. The whole sport has become much more scientific. Yeah, well, obviously Wenger was was kind of one of the proponents of that, wasn't he? So must have been. Was the change quite radical when he came in? From your yes, point it was. Um, I mean, he changed a lot of things, but the one thing I think he changed more than anything was people's attitudes towards training. I mean, the culture up to when before I worked with Arsene was as long as you played well on a Saturday and were able to play on a Saturday, what you did during the week wasn't quite so important. Whereas Arsenal's philosophy is you train the way you play, you prepare properly for the game. And that includes intense training sessions, preparation, um, good sleeping patterns, good nutrition. Um, and I think that's that's the side of the game that he brought more than anything else in that players realised how important training became. And I think nowadays, if you don't train the way you play, you won't succeed. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that sort of good advice at every level of the game, really, because I think it has filtered through right the way down. I mean, the way sort of non-league football these days is is played and the way that the players train now, um, you know, it's it's different probably even than sort of five years ago, probably. How, how Oh, yeah, it's going it's going through everything. I think um, non-league football, I mean, in, in the last couple of years, I've been involved quite heavily with Woking because I know the guys over there quite well and the level of preparation that goes into non-league football is stepping up year on year. Um, you look at grassroots football. Um, you look at now how the um, children at school are educated and the understanding of what goes on. And with social media now and the information that's coming out from county associations, the clubs, um, the information is there on tap. So people are be- becoming much more educated in, in how to prepare, how to look after themselves and the good things and bad things that you should and shouldn't do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, one last last one from you. I mean, I'm sort of talking about you, you know, as, as a real sort of leader in your field. Um, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that will maybe be um, students of physiotherapy um, or, or working in the game at a grassroots level. 
Um, if you could give sort of one or two kind of key pieces of advice um, that can apply to anyone, what, what would that be? I think the way the game has gone, especially from grassroots level, I'm a great advocate of first aid training. And I think it's really important early on in your careers, you you do you go to the highest level of first aid training you possibly can, whether it be basic CPR all the way through to advanced um, first aid training. The second thing is, if you want to make a career in it, I think you need to show how hard you're prepared to work. Sport is an unsocial hour product. So people play sport in their own time, which means if you're going to work in sport, you're going to work in the evenings, you're going to work on Saturdays, you're going to work on Sundays. And I think if you're serious about working in sport, classic example I tell people is the first Christmas day I had off was my first year at the FA. And that was after being in football for 25 years. Wow. Um, that's the sort of sacrifices if you're going to work in sport that you have to make. So to get that step up to be able to work in sport, you've got to show people in the sporting world that you're prepared to go that extra mile. So you volunteer for charity runs, marathons, triathlons, athletic clubs, rugby clubs, football clubs. So not only are you advancing yourself clinically and medically, but you're also you're you're showing that you've got the character that's prepared to work unsociable hours and go that little bit further to try and get further in the sport. So apart from getting the qualifications you need, it's actually proving to everybody you're prepared to work that bit harder. That's sound advice. Sound advice. Thank you very much, Gary. Now it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. Thank you for listening to another one of our Stoppage Time podcasts. To keep up to date with everything going on at Surrey FA, why not follow us on social media? You'll find us at Surrey FA on Twitter and Facebook, at Surrey County FA on Instagram, and Surrey FA TV on YouTube. Take care, and we'll be back soon with another Surrey FA Stoppage Time podcast.